सप्ताह तक ऑनलाइन अवेलेबल है Radio Borders Youth Association. Good afternoon, everybody. You are listening to the sound of Universal Compassion. Today is 13 of November. We will continue listening to Tenton Chosen's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies, and please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3, or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with three dollars worth of stamps in an envelope to PO Box eight two one four six Highland Park, Howick, Auckland, or you can phone zero nine two seven one three three seven seven. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program today. In previous programs, we examined the Buddhist teachings in accordance with the graduated path to enlightenment, presented by the Gelugpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. That follows a series of topics for study, contemplation, and meditation that lead progressively to the final stage of liberation from karma and the afflictive emotions, and on to omniscience. We've completed that path. But if you missed it and would like a CD copy of those programs, please contact me, Tenzin Chozang, through Community Radio, and I will send you one. Today we start on something completely new. We're going to dis- to start discussing one of the most famous texts in Tibetan Buddhism, Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. I've taken teachings on this text from various masters, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I will be basing our discussion on his teachings, and on a Pema Chodron commentary in a book called No Time to Lose. I think most of you will know about His Holiness, even if you haven't attended any any of his talks or teachings. But Pema Chodron probably needs a bit of an introduction. She's an American, and was an elementary school teacher for many years, becoming a student of the controversial Tibetan Buddhist master. Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche in 1974. Chogyang Trungpa was one of the Tibetan masters who brought the Vajrayana teachings to the West, and was known for his outlandish behavior. Some people call crazy wisdom. He wrote quite a few books that really explained the Tibetan teachings in Western psychological terms. Two of the most famous are Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And Shambhala, the Sacred Path of the Warrior. You will find many more on Amazon or the book depository. But back to Pema Chodron, she was ordained first in the Tibetan tradition by the 16th Kamapa, but then later became a fully ordained nun in the Chinese tradition. She became the head of the Gampo Abbey in Nova Scotia, and has written a number of books that have really resonated with Westerners. You may have heard of the wisdom of no escape. Start where you are. When things fall apart, heart advice for difficult times. The places that scare you, and practicing peace in times of war. In her tradition, she's incredibly wise, but very down to earth. She has quite a different take on Shanti Deva's text from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. In that his holiness comes from a traditional Tibetan point of view, while Pema Chodron brings Chogyam Trungpa's Westernized teaching to the text. 
Of course, I'm not saying the two readings conflict. In fact, I find coming from different viewpoints, they make the Shantideva text that much richer. Now a word about Shantideva. His story starts in the largest and most famous Buddhist monastery in India, which existed from the 5th or 6th century to 1197 CE. The monastery covered 14 hectares, and at the height of its power, it reputedly housed 10,000 monks, some from as far away as Greece, China and Persia. Turkic Muslims destroyed the monastery in 1193. Rumour has it that the massive library burned for three months after they set fire to it. Anyway, in the 8th century CE, Shantideva was a scholar at this great monastery. Now, I doubt any Western historian will tell the story I'm about to tell you, but it's famous among the Tibetans. It goes like this. A certain monk who lived at Nalanda was known by the other monks to be extremely lazy. He kept to his room most of the day, and all he seemed to do was sleep, eat, and go to the toilet and so the other monks called him the Three Discriminations. This man, they said, performs none of the three duties required of the monks of this monastery. He has no right to enjoy the food and arms offered in religion to the Sangha. We must drive him away. They couldn't just kick him out of the monastery for some reason, perhaps because he was the son of a Brahmin king. So they eventually decided on a strategy that they hoped would force him to leave. They would take turns in teaching, and when it came to his turn, he would make such a fool of himself and be so humiliated that he would have to leave Nalanda. So they asked this monk, who was of course Shantideva, to teach. At first he refused, saying that he knew nothing, that they were much more learned than him and so on. But they persisted and finally got the abbot to ask him, at which he agreed. Now, just to make Shantideva's humiliation complete, the monks built a huge throne for him, far too high for him to step onto, and without any means to help him up. Of course, they thought that when he couldn't get onto the throne, he would become the laughing stock of the whole assembly. However, imagine their surprise when at the time for the teaching, he appeared at the top of the throne, asking them whether they wanted to hear a teaching on a text they already knew about, or if they wanted something completely new. They stammered out that they wanted to hear something new, and so Shantideva taught this text, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And I told you, you wouldn't find this story in any Western history. Anyway, the text is divided into ten chapters, roughly covering the six perfections that the Bodhisattva follows on his path to enlightenment. The first chapter expounds the benefits of Bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment to benefit all beings. The second goes through preliminary practices but focuses on purification. The third is on commitment to bodhicitta and then from the fourth to the ninth ninth chapters the text describes how to develop practices on mindfulness and awareness particularly with regard to keeping ethics, patience, perseverance or enthusiasm, concentration and wisdom. The tenth chapter is a dedication. The Tibetan story goes that when Shantideva reached the teachings on wisdom, he started rising in the air, going higher and higher, until he physically disappeared and only his voice could be heard. Now whether this is true or just an embellishment to make us develop more respect for him, I don't know. 
But the history goes on to say that he didn't stay on at the monastery after this, but became a real mendicant, travelling from place to place and staying nowhere for long. So that's the story of Shantideva. In our discussion of his text, we're going to start at the beginning and go through to the 8th chapter. I'm not going to go into the ninth chapter, the chapter on wisdom, because it's actually very difficult to understand. Not only is the subject matter, the nature of reality, in itself hard to grasp, but the chapter is written almost in code. Most of the monks at Nalanda already had a strong education in Buddhist philosophy, which included a lot of debate and analysis. So Shantideva could be quite terse in his explanations, and they would know what he was talking about. However, we who have not had no such training will find it almost impossible to decipher Shantideva's arguments. In any case, we will find a huge amount of material to think on and practice in the other chapters, so we don't have to feel too let down by skipping the ninth. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has said that the most important chapters in this text, especially for us, are the sixth and the eighth, those on patience and concentration respectively. And anyway, in the chapter on patience, Shantideva has an excellent discussion on the nature of reality, which doesn't need an extensive background in philosophy to understand, so we will certainly not miss out on wisdom entirely. The text is a kind of practice manual for someone who wishes to attain full Buddhahood. As you will see, Shantideva uses it as a spur for his own mind and practice. In fact, he says in the beginning that he mainly wrote it as an encouragement for himself, once he had taken on the Bodhisattva vow and responsibilities. He takes a a typical stick and carrot approach, but sometimes applying quite a lot more stick than carrot, which, as Pema Chodron says, often doesn't work all that well with Westerners. We prefer to be inspired rather than being told that if we don't do as we're told, we'll land up in a very hot place with a bunch of creatures with sharp weapons and very unpleasant natures. However, whether we respond to encouragement or to threats, if we want to become bodhisattvas, we have a long and often difficult road ahead of us. We will no doubt from time to time become discouraged. So I guess Shantideva is doing all he can to, to keep himself and us going. Now, before we go into the text, let's examine our motivation for participating in the, day, in the program today. In an introduction to teaching this text, His Holiness mentions that the purpose of Buddhist practice is the elimination of suffering, and to achieve that, we first have to understand what suffering is. In particular, His Holiness speaks of three sufferings, the suffering that we all recognize as suffering, that is sickness, accidents, relationship breakups, and so on. The suffering of change and all pervasive suffering. The suffering of change basically means that no matter what we do to make ourselves happy in this type of existence, we all always land up back in a state of dissatisfaction. For instance, we might feel hungry, which is a state of suffering, and so go to a restaurant for a nice meal. The first few mouthfuls may be very satisfying, but as we progressively get further into the meal, it becomes less and less delightful until in the end we can't take another bite without feeling ill. If you think about it, all our pleasures are like that. No enjoyment will get better and better the more we indulge in it continuously. 
To keep it enjoyable, at some time we have to stop, do something else for a while, and then come back to it later. This means that we're always hopping from one thing to another, and then to another, and so on, to extract any happiness out of this type of existence. That happiness is always short-lived, and in the nature of restlessness and dissatisfaction. Try to think of anything you enjoy that this doesn't apply to. You can't, can you? So, in fact, the more we continuously suffer, the more painful it becomes. And similarly, the more continuous pleasure we have, the more painful it becomes. Now, the last type of suffering, or pervasive suffering, just means that because of the type of body and mind we have, we can never escape coming across dissatisfaction and misery. Our existence is rooted in dissatisfaction. No matter what we do to get long-term happiness and complete freedom from suffering, we will always come in contact with whatever we don't want or like and lose or not come into contact with whatever we like or want. Our dissatisfaction is in the very nature of this type of existence. To develop proper renunciation, it is this third type of suffering we have to truly understand. Now, I know that many of you will be quite familiar with this explanation, but it is central to our developing the right motivation. His Holiness points out the importance of cause and effect in Buddhist philosophy and practice, and so if we want to free ourselves from suffering, we first have to identify what suffering is and what its causes are. We then have to eliminate the causes of suffering and establish the causes for happiness. Having identified what is meant by suffering, we have to look for the cause. And that of is, of course, the afflictive emotions, the karma they produce, and the underlying mistaken view of reality that gives rise to them. So, to be free of suffering, we have to eliminate the afflictive emotions and stop creating karma. Ultimately, this means experientially understanding the nature of reality and correcting our view but that is quite difficult. And so before we can get to that stage, we first have to nullify our negativities, then eliminate the self-grasping mind, then engage in meditation on emptiness or the nature of reality. Nullifying our negativities means we have to particularly stop creating the ten non-virtuous actions. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, slander, harsh words, gossip, wrong views, harmful thoughts to others and covetousness, and try to make our lives as positive as possible. That will also help in eliminating the self-grasping mind, for being positive means thinking more of others and how we can be of benefit than thinking of ourselves and only our own comfort. Don't worry, we're very close now to establishing motivation for thinking of the benefit of others points directly to it. How can we best benefit others? Well, by leading them away from suffering and pointing them towards long-lasting happiness, no matter what the circumstances. In Buddhist terms, this means leading them to enlightenment, for then they will definitely have no more suffering. And who is the best at leading beings to enlightenment? That must definitely be a Buddha, one who has eliminated all negativities realized all that needs to be realized, knows all that can be known, and has only the welfare of all others at heart. 
So that leads to the motivation to attain enlightenment so I can be of the greatest benefit to others. In other words, bodhicitta, the very theme of Shantideva's text. Therefore, let's take a moment to set such a, mo- such a motivation. If you think it's too big an ask for you, at least set a motivation to attain your own enlightenment and help others along the way as much as possible. Thank you. Now, with such a strong motivation, let's go back to considering Shantideva. I'm going to use one of the better-known translations of the text, Stephen Batchelor's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, published by the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. In terms of structure, His Holiness points out that Shantideva's text follows the sequence we gave above, eliminating the negativities, then eliminating the self-grasping mind, and finally engaging in meditation on the nature of reality, emptiness. Although the text has now been translated into English a number of times, and the title has been glossed in various ways, His Holiness says the meaning of the original Sanskrit title, Bodhisattva Charyavatara, is the wisdom focused on Bodhi, that is the ultimate sphere of reality free from any mental obscurations, and Sattva, a hero who has great compassion focused on all sentient beings achieving enlightenment. These two, the unobstructed clear wisdom understanding the nature of reality and the great compassion focused on the enlightenment of all beings go hand in hand enhancing one another. We start with the first verse of the first chapter, naturally, the chapter on the benefits of developing bodhicitta. Of course, if we want to accomplish something, we must know what benefit we're going to get from putting the necessary effort in. Developing bodhicitta is very difficult. I've been taught that it's more difficult than realizing the nature of reality. So we have to really be convinced of the benefits if we're thinking about spending ages cultivating this mind. So in the first chapter, Shantideva goes about convincing us how great the benefits are. However, the first verse pays homage and makes the promise to compose the text. It goes like this. Respectfully, I prostrate myself to the Sagatas, who are endowed with the Dharmakaya, as well as to their noble sons and to all who are worthy of veneration. Here I shall explain how to engage in the vows of the Buddha's sons, the meaning of which I have condensed in accordance with the scriptures. This was a common way of starting texts in in Shantideva's day. It usually indicated which of the three baskets of teachings the text would belong to. For those unfamiliar with the way the Buddha's teachings are commonly organized, the three baskets refers to the three categories, the teachings on Vinaya or ethics, teachings on concentration, and teachings on wisdom. According to His Highness, this is a text that covers all three, but it's mainly a teaching belonging to the basket on concentration. The verse may sound sound quite foreign with words like Sugatas and Dharmakaya, so let's check out what it's all about. Sugata means one gone to bliss. As we said earlier, normally, as we ordinary beings are constantly tormented by the unsatisfactory nature of our existence, our minds are eternally buffeted by the influences of our various internal elaborations. We are governed by an egoistic mind that grasps at the self as if it were a real, inherent and independent entity. We continuously see things dualistically, 
me and mine, you and yours, and so on, and are tormented by afflictive emotions like attachment, aversion, and so on, and the resultant karmas. A Buddha has given all this turmoil up with the result that he or she always experiences a great bliss that we can only dream about. And so, Sugatas refers to those who no longer have even the slightest trace of negativity on their mind streams and have completely realized all things as they truly are, thus possessing a mind that is always blissful, that is, the Buddhas themselves. In his commentary on this text, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that one way of understanding going to great bliss is the result of practicing the Buddhist path of vast method and profound wisdom. Here, vast method refers to the development of bodhicitta especially, and profound wisdom is the elimination of the four distortions we usually impose on reality. These four distortions are, firstly, seeing impermanent things as having some kind of permanent nature, secondly, seeing what is impure as pure, thirdly, thinking that what is unpleasant is actually pleasant, and fourth, conceptualizing a self or essence where actually no essence or self exists at all. Because of these wrong ways of experiencing our reality, we develop afflictive emotions and act inappropriately. That results in situations of suffering. But if we can change and see our reality through valid cognitions, if we can see the unpleasant, the impure, the impermanent and the selfless for what they really are, we can free ourselves. For instance, His Holiness talks about killing. So let's consider the killing of an animal. Either we kill through hatred, like slapping a mosquito, or through attachment, like killing a sheep because we like mutton for dinner. Our cognitions about the mosquito and the mutton are both incorrect, as is the way we see ourselves. But seeing ourselves as having some kind of real essence, seeing the mosquito as evil and seeing the mutton as delicious, all lead us to create the action of killing, and that in turn will land us in misery in the future. We do not have an essence, a self. The mosquito is not inherently evil, and mutton is not inherently delicious. These are all fabrications of our mind, but when we act on them, they cause both immediate suffering to the objects of our actions, the mosquito or sheep, and later sufferings to ourselves through the tendencies or karma left on our minds. If we base our actions on valid cognitions, for instance, that we have no inherent self, that the mosquito is not inherently dangerous, nor is the mutton inherently delicious, it will be much more unlikely that we will kill either the mosquito or the sheep and so we will not accumulate the negative karma of killing. In fact, realizing that both the mosquito and the sheep are beings just like ourselves and want happiness and freedom from suffering just like ourselves, we're much more likely to develop compassion for them and want to help them. The best way to help is to gain enlightenment so we will have the greatest power for benefit possible. Helping the mozzie and the sheep will then be thousands, even millions of times more powerful than helping them now. So thinking like this, 
I may even decide to attain enlightenment to be of great, such greatest benefit to others. And that is the mind of bodhicitta, which, as you can see, is based on valid understanding. Going back to the verse in the text, the Dharmakaya refers to the ultimate nature of the Buddhas, empty of inherent independent existence. Not only is it the ultimate nature of the Buddhas, but it is also the ultimate realization of the Buddhas, whose qualities are all born out of this realization. The experience of the Dharmakaya is described in one definition as timeless, permanent, devoid of characteristics, and free from duality. It is the spiritual body of the Buddhas, their true nature, which all Buddhas have in common. Now this might be a little difficult to understand, but don't worry, it does need many teachings and a lot of thought even to conceptualize conventionally, never mind understand ultimately. The noble sons, as quoted in the verse, are Arya Sangha Bodhisattvas, who have realized the true nature of reality and all worthy of veneration are abbots, masters and anybody else who knows the Buddha's teachings inside out and how to apply them. In the second part of the verse, Shantideva says, Here I shall explain how to engage in the vows of the Buddha's sons, the meaning of which I have condensed in accordance with the scriptures. Again, the Buddha's sons refers to the bodhisattvas, those who have taken on the responsibility to attain enlightenment so they can be of greatest benefit to all sentient beings. When you enter the bodhisattva's way of life, you take a number of vows by which you're supposed to live from then on. Those vows form the basis for the actions of a bodhisattva. In Tibetan Buddhism, such actions are driven by the six perfections, generosity, morality, patience, enthusiasm, concentration, and wisdom. So here, Shantideva is promising to write a text that shows the bodhisattva how to act in accordance with the vows and perfections. As I explained before, chapters 4 to 9 of the text explain the last five of the perfections, ethics through mindfulness and awareness, patience, enthusiasm, concentration and wisdom. The first perfection, generosity, is alluded to throughout the book. Now in the next two stanzas, Shantideva says, There's nothing here that has not been explained before, and I have no skill in the art of rhetoric. Therefore, lacking any intention to benefit others, I write this in order to acquaint it to my mind. For due to acquaintance with what is wholesome, the force of my faith may for a short while increase because of these words. If, however, these words are seen by others, equal in fortune to myself, it may be meaningful for them. The second stanza accomplishes two purposes. Firstly, Shantideva ensures that he is not acting out of arrogance or pride, thinking that he has special powers of eloquence to teach, so he expresses his motivation with humility. Then secondly, he states that the text is a practice manual and not something to be read for elegant expression. In verse 3, he says he wrote it primarily to remind himself of the practices that need to be undertaken by a bodhisattva and to encourage himself to engage in those practices. It was not written seeking the praise of others for its eloquent exposition. Although it's a practice text for his own use, if it is read by others with the same inclination and positive potential as himself, they may also derive some benefit from it. 
His Holiness says that those who take it to heart and practice analytical and placement meditations on its themes will gain a profounder understanding from one day to the next, even doing the same meditation every day. The important meditations, he says, are those on emptiness and bodhicitta. Pema Chodron makes a pertinent point here for us Westerners. We have a tendency to put ourselves down, but when Shantideva says, there's nothing here that has not been explained before, and I have no skill in the art of rhetoric, he's not indicating that he has low self-esteem. Pema Chodron says he's not going to be trapped in what she calls the limited identity of personal inadequacy, but rather he's humble enough to know his current limitations and is intelligent enough to know how to free himself from them. When Shantideva talks about acquaintance with what is wholesome, he reminds us that most of our actions in this samsaric existence are negative and so will lead to dissatisfaction and suffering. Positive actions, particularly motivated by bodhicitta and an understanding of selflessness, are actions that are wholesome. And now I have to leave you for time is up. Thanks for joining us for the program today and I hope you'll do so again next week. Please dedicate any benefit you've gained from this program to your enlightenment so you can, in turn, help all others attain enlightenment. Goodbye.